For the LA Times Studio in the Real, I'm Mark Olson. And I'm joined now by my colleague Travel Anderson to talk about the new documentary, The Gospel According to Andre. Travel, why don't you tell us a little about who Andre is and what exactly is his gospel? Uh, <laughs> Andre Leon Talley is literally everything. I think most people will know Andre Leon Talley as former fashion editor at Vogue magazine. He's really probably the most powerful black man in fashion, I would say. I first came to know Andre Leon Talley as a judge on America's Next Top Model back in the day when the show was actually good. Um, And he's kind of transcended so many kind of barriers in the industry to where now I think he's just like a fashion consultant. People call him up to be like, do you like this outfit type of thing? He sits atop the stairs at the Met Gala and like judges everybody and does little mini interviews when they come up all the stairs like he's just everything he's like one of those people who like he has a job and he gets paid to be fabulous but like you may not necessarily know what kind of title to ascribe to him type of thing and so what is the documentary like tell me a little bit about the movie itself as you said, it's called The Gospel According to Andre, and it's basically kind of this look at who Andre Leon Talley is behind the scenes. It kind of pulls back a lot of the layers. We start with kind of his upbringing in Durham, North Carolina, living with his grandmother, going to church, how he first discovered Vogue magazine, and then how he basically every step along the way, how he became who he is. I love how you you were very clear here as well as in the in the in the film about how clear you here just, in this interview. Yes, okay. in this interview and in the film about how you were just like talented and opportunities came your way. Because I, perhaps then, I want to say clearly, perhaps then there were very few black people in fashion. And I happened to have been early in the 1970s to come to New York at the right place at the right time. And luckily I got my foot into the right doors. As I say, there have not been many black people in the fashion who have reached the levels that I had. And I am very, very proud that to this day, Edward Innenfeld, who was knighted by the Queen, he's English, got the job as editor-in-chief of British Vogue. And when he got the job, I knew about it before it was even announced. And I got the, the word out on my email at 5 a.m. in the morning. And I immediately emailed him, and he's a friend, and I said, Edward, congratulations, you so deserve it. And I knew Edward through his work at Vogue and ID. He was doing, you know, shoots for Vogue, and they mm-hmm. were impeccable. And Edward sent me back an email. He said, you paved the way. Mm-hmm. And that's the proudest compliment I have in my career, that the first black man who was able to be named editor-in-chief of British Vogue, it took all these years, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It took all these years to get there. A black man, mm-hmm. not a black woman, mm-hmm. a black man. This is a breakthrough. This is seismic. This is defining fashion. He will go down in history. He is a legacy. One of the really interesting parts about the documentary is it was filmed during the 2016 election cycle. And so we see his thoughts on politics pop up throughout a lot of it, how he was supporting Hillary Clinton. And, you know, he actually was tasked with the job during Trump's inauguration to comment on the fashion. And so it's interesting to see him sitting in this apartment in D.C., just kind of in, I don't want to use the word disgust, but like very surprised at the moment that is happening that he did not expect to happen. And so it's it's that. There's all these different talking heads in the film. A lot of them are major fashion icons. 
Sons from, you know, Diane von Furstenberg, Anna Wintour's in it, Mark Jacobs is in it, Tom Ford, and then other kind of bigger personalities. Will I Am is in it, uh, Whoopi Goldberg is in it. So many people, journalist Tamron Hall is in it. So many people that you just wouldn't expect to be impacted by this figure. Everyone is literally in this documentary. I'm just very proud to say that Kate's film is each and each and more every day for me a great, great blessing in my life. Mm-hmm. And the response of people when I was at the Montclair Film Festival last week, a theater was about a thousand, it was full. They standing ovation. Mm-hmm. Tribeca, standing ovation, thunderous applause. And now I think you've had the opportunity to interview him twice now, sort of in the cycle of the movie, which first premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival last fall. But before we get to that, tell me a little bit about what he means to you. Like, since you first discovered him, maybe what else you've learned about him or what he as a personality and as a figure means to you personally. Yeah, so... As I mentioned, he was a judge on America's Next Top Model, one of my favorite reality shows of all time. And that was my first time kind of just seeing a black man with a gender performance that wasn't kind of stereotypically masculine. Both him and Miss J from that show kind of clued me into kind of the possibilities of what life could look like. And so, like, you know, I identify as a gender nonconforming queer individual right now. And both of them together and their varying presentations of selves of what a queer black man could look like. Miss J is very effeminate, wears high heels, makeup, all of that. Anjali Antali, who, by the way, does not identify as any sort of queer or LGBTQ or anything like that. He also doesn't identify as straight for that matter as well. But Anjali Antali, he's a big like six, eight man he says in the documentary that he wants, uh, or he sometimes thinks of himself as a manatee. Um, and I use that only for the purpose of conveying his size and his stature. But he is just someone who, despite what he looks like, despite what the world ascribes to what he looks like, he's just traversed this path in such a beautiful way that I find kind of aspirational and lets me know that I can kind of show up in a lot of these spaces in the ways that I want to and still be able to kind of succeed and thrive. And I know for myself, I've been aware of him a little longer than you have, and I had never had the opportunity to meet him until last fall when he came into the LA Times photo and video <laughs> Do studio. Do you remember that? <laughs> I mean, I remember that day very, very clearly. He is such a presence. I he mean, he, he arrives. And one of the things that I commented about him coming through our photo studio at Toronto was that it's not often that you see Black people being able to, like, come into a room, particularly a white room, right, a white space, and, like, control the space. He comes in and, like, literally everyone is on alert. And so one of the things that stuck out to me was just how he was taking photos with that photographer, Jay. Usually Jay is the one orchestrating the photo. But in this moment, Andre Leontelli's like, First of all, he's like, I've got this. I don't need any of your suggestions on how I pose. But two, why am I taking all three of these different photos with these different backgrounds? I don't want to do all of that. And it was just so amazing to see everyone just like move out of his way and let him do him. I I just loved seeing that. But also I remember, so to sort of clarify, in the photo studio at uh, a festival like in Toronto, our photographer Jake Clendenin will have sort of multiple cameras set up with multiple 
backdrops, and we oftentimes have the talent come through, and they do the first setup, and they do the second setup, and they do the third setup. And Andre was kind of having none of that. He <laughs> knew which ones were going to look best for him, right. which ones he wanted to do. And also, I apologize if I'm using this incorrectly, he gave face like no one I've ever seen. Like, he, like, knew how to pose with his hands, with his face, with his body. He's everything. In a way that was just astonishing to see. It was there's really a, There's something. a reason why, you know, he's been in this industry this long and he's been around all sorts of models, all sorts of photo shoots. Cool. Fashion can be very cruel. Mm-hmm. The fashion world can be very cruel and very insensitive, you know? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. based on a lot of fic- fickle superficiality. It's based on a lot of people who have a lot of ego driven by their egos and their own selfishness and their own blind ambition to get ahead. I know people who will step over their mothers going across the street to get positions of power in magazines. And so it could be a very, very cruel world. He knows who he is. He knows his body. He knows what angles work best for him. And he's not afraid to let anyone know that he's very secure in in his body and who he is and how that shows up in the world. And I think that manifests itself in terms of how he deals with people. And he's a person where, like, what you going to tell Andre Leon Talley no that he can't have it his way? Really? No, you're not. And so it's just beautiful to see him being able to harness that power in a body like that that is often deemed threatening and alarming in our broader society. Well, I just recall so clearly that he was reluctant to... Jay has a vintage, not Polaroid, instant camera that he likes to use. And Andre was reluctant to pose for that camera. And one of the people in his traveling party, Jay, frequently leaves a lot of the previous photos out because they're drying. And the person just said, oh, well, Nicole was here. Right. Obviously meaning Miss <laughs> Nicole Kidman. And suddenly Andre was like, okay with it. He's like, fine. If Nicole did it, I guess I will. I love that, man. And now that interview in particular, I felt emotional watching you doing that interview at the time. Tell me a little bit about that first interview and what it was like for you to meet Andre for the first time. You know, it's just like you never... In my life, there are very few people that I look at as possibility models, that I look at as role models. And so many of them have, like, attained a level in their career that I might not ever, um, you know, get to. And so just, like, meeting him and being in that space was, like, kind of a transformative experience for me. Doing that interview, and then in particular, having him kind of give me his, like, like knighting me and like giving me his approval for the work that I'm doing and for who I am and how I show up in this space. He called me the next Andre Leon Talley. And like, I literally, I went back to my hotel room and cried later that night. Um, Because it was just like, it just, it did something to me like deeply and internally that I, I wasn't expecting, but it was just wonderful to be kind of affirmed in that particular way. And so what has it been like for you? More recently, you sat down with him again. You did sort of a longer Mm -hmm. interview with him. And was there anything from that conversation that really stood out to you? Was there anything that he spoke about that kind of was was surprising to you? Angelina Telly is one of these older personalities in the industry who doesn't often talk about race who doesn't often talk about the hills that they have had to climb. And not because it was easy, but because they've just, you know, set themselves up to know that they just had to put their head down and do the work. And so in the documentary and in our interview, he goes on about one particular situation where a former person in the industry called him Queen Kong. And he talked in our interview about, like, how that affected him and what it meant. I think it was terrible. So I have quietly 
overcome, I hope you put this in your article, mm-hmm. overcome these kinds of terribly traumatic events in terms of my life, mm-hmm. you know? Being called Queen Kong and being told I slept at every design event. I have never slept with any designer. Living, dead, straight, gay, quattro, otherwise. I have never slept with any designer. I got here because I had knowledge. As Judge Judy always says, they don't keep me here for my looks. They kept me here for my power. Mm-hmm. So no designer has ever been my lover. I would hope you would say that. That's mm-hmm. not in a documentary, too. Mm-hmm. And I say that a lot when I go to Q&As. Mm-hmm. Now your face became- how he found it to be racist and homophobic all at the same time. And how that also wasn't the first and only time that he had to deal with race-related things. But, you know, the way he got through it was by just doing the work and being fabulous and being great. And it's like, you may think I'm Queen Kong, but, you know... I run this industry, basically, is what he was saying. I know that was a moment you had actually sort of concluded the interview. Yes, I had finished the interview and I had decided that I didn't want to ask, you know, certain questions like that because I don't want to spoil the documentary. And there's some really great moments in the documentary where he talks about race. And I also figured that based on my previous conversations with him, that he might be a little bit kind of cagey around those types of questions. But then in the interview, I turn off the microphone and we're just talking and he's commenting on like what I'm wearing and what he remembers about me from Toronto and all this other stuff. All of a sudden, he's just like, turn the microphone back on. And I'm like, okay, when Andre Leontali tells you to turn the microphone back on, you turn the goddamn microphone back on. So I turn the microphone back on, and then he, he launches into this bit about the Queen Kong comment and about how he dealt with things. And so that allowed me, because he, he seemed comfortable and he seemed open to, and he brought it up himself, it allowed me to ask more specific questions about the steps he took and how he actually kind of traversed those grounds, being a big black man in France, right, as the editor of Women's Wear Daily at the time and having people calling you Queen Kong. And then also on somewhat of a different note, when you were talking to him, I can't remember the exact chronology, but it was around the recent Met Ball mm-hmm. that just happened. And so he he gave you a bit of a commentary on the history of the Met Ball. Yes, and who his favorites were this year in particular, which I will say... When I come into the room at the start of the interview, I have to set up, you know, my laptop and this audio recorder and all this other stuff to record the audio. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, make small talk while I'm setting up about the Met Ball, about the Met Gal, because he was he was there. And he, in his wonderful way, he's like, I didn't come here to talk about the Met Ball. We came here to talk about my movie. I'm not, and he's like, he he wouldn't answer anything about the mood, about the environment, whatever. I wasn't even asking him who he thought was the best dressed yet. But then again, after that moment where he asked me to turn it back on, I turned it off. And then again, he's like, I'm going to give you some Met Ball quotes. And so he tells me that his best dressed is Kate Moss, followed by Tiffany Haddish, and then Rihanna. Which surprises me, because Rihanna was like usually everyone's top for her young Pope that she was giving us. But he gave me that bit of information that was beautiful. Iconic person, and she still looks incredible at her age, and she's married, and with babies, and she looked incredible with this short miniskirt from Salon now. Mm-hmm. It was inspired by a Salon dress from before, but it was incredible. And then, of course, Tiffany Haddish, the second prize in Brandon Maxwell. Mm-hmm. And then Rihanna in Marching Margiela, Maison Margiela by John Galliano. Out of a hundred and some odd celebrities, Miss mm-hmm. Kate Moss I love it. stood out because she stood out for true original style. She selected a dress that obviously was going to suit her 
her body, her legs, it was appropriate mm. black tie, yet it was modern and original and elegant. And Tiffany had on the most beautiful black Brandon Maxwell trousers with a smoking top that unfurled it when she turned it back to a sleeping dramatic train, tuxedo train or something. Her hair was slick. She looked incredible. The end of your interview was not the end of your interactions with Andre. The film screened at the L.A. County Museum. He was there for a Q&A afterwards, and a little something else happened. Tell me what happened. So during our interview, he sees the heels that I'm wearing, and he begins to educate me on the style of heel that I'm wearing, which is called a, a comb d'orsay which are like the heels where like the toes are covered and then the back is covered, but the sides are open. And he educates me on this, da 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 Interview ends and he asks me if I'm coming to the screening the next day, co-sponsored by LACMA and Film Independent. I say, yes, I'll be there or whatever. Okay. Film screens the next day. He's doing the Q&A with him, one of the producers um, and the director, Kate Novak. And somebody asks him a question. I can't remember what the question is. And he's like, he's like, it's Travel here. It's, Tra- it's Travel in the audience. I'm sitting in the audience. I start to break out in sweat. I'm just like, what is he doing? What is he doing? What is he doing? And so I scream out, yes, I'm here. And he's like, come on stage. Come on stage. So I get up and I crawl over the people and walk up on stage and he begins again to kind of tell the people that he sees a lot of himself in me and that I got hired not because of my good looks, but because I'm fabulous and I'm smart and I ask the right questions and I do my research and all this other stuff likening me to how he kind of got all of the opportunities that he got in his career. It was a really wonderful moment. We again gave an education moment to, because I had another pair of comb d'orsays on. And so it was another moment of education for the audience around what a comb d'orsay is. It was really kind of surreal, to be honest, to be, not only did he tell me personally, right, that I'm the next Anjali Andali, but he brought me up on the stage to show all these white folk, right, that there is somebody out here doing something that he sees in a similar vein to what he was doing. I, I live a very blessed life, to be honest. Anything in my life. My life has been because people saw something in me mm. And that is how I was given the privilege to be. The same way Anna Winter saw something in me that she gave me Michelle Obama to interview when she became first lady. And that was the big, important cover story for the first black African-American lady. I didn't lobby. I didn't stand in line. I didn't navigate. I didn't, didn't uh, scheme to get these places. These things came to me because of my aura or my knowledge or my own persona. And now he also, he mentioned a couple of books in the course of your talking with him. Uh, Maybe it would be useful for all of us to have sort of an Andre bibliography. What are a couple of the books that he he mentioned to you that people who are maybe interested in where he's coming from and in his sort of like perspective on fashion? Yes. What would those be? His foundational two texts, if you will, to learning about fashion and gaining a lot of this history that he kind of has was one, reading the pages of Vogue when he was younger. That was, it's kind of amazing to see that he discovered fashion through the pages of Vogue and now he is one of the chief commentators for Vogue and all of that. So that book and then another book called Fashionable Savages that is no longer in print, but it's kind of a historical take on where a lot of the classic designers got their inspirations from. And that book also, he also talks about in the documentary how Karl Lagerfeld, who was his first major interview, actually gifted him 
massive wardrobe of clothes that he thought would look good on him and told him a number of like books that he should also read. And that's how he got his fashion knowledge together. But Fashionable Savages and then Old School Vogue is where he got his education from in fashion. I believe you said it's your, your first big interview was with... Carl Lagerfeld. Uh, Carl Lagerfeld, yes. What do you remember about, about that first I remember Carl Lagerfeld. Uh, I had done my homework, and I had done my research, <laughs> and that's the most important thing. And I remember that Carl Lagerfeld was very easy to talk to, and I was very prepared, so I was very confident. There were a lot of people on the Sunday afternoon tea, Andy Warhol, Fred Hughes, Bob Colicello. We all went up together, and uh, Antonio and Juan, and then Carl had his entourage, and we're at the Plaza Atenee, not the Plaza Atenee, the Plaza Hotel on Fifth Avenue, and although Carl was a bigger figure than I had ever met in fashion, he seemed very down-to-earth to me because I could talk about things on the same level. I had done my homework, so I knew that 18th century France was important to him, so mm. we bonded over that. Mm. I love that. And I think all of us should now uh, hit up our local libraries or uh, online retailers to find some out-of-print books. Yes, it's available. I saw some books available on Amazon, so it's available if you want to get your history game up. And one thing that's interesting about him is he didn't study fashion at all in school. He actually went to, I forget what he studied for undergrad, but he went to grad school for French. That's why his language and the way he speaks is the way it is, because he just has this wonderful grasp of language and the French language to be specific. But yeah, he didn't study fashion. He just read pages of Vogue, read Fashionable Savages, and then... I guess, kind of unlocked a world into fashion through, you know, internships and other opportunities. And so your story on the gospel, according to Andre, and your interview with Andre Leon Talley, will be publishing in the Los Angeles Times soon? Soon, yeah. Film comes out on the 25th, May 25th, and so my story will be up by then, at least. And uh, (laughs) why why don't you tell people where they can find you online? You can find me online at Travel Anderson. And I feel like I should spell it for people because I never do any other time. So that's T-R-E-V-E-L-L, Anderson with an O. And for LA Times Studio and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening.